Welcome to Rose Tinted, a podcast where we challenge the limits of our nostalgia by re-examining some of our favourite childhood movies. I'm Ollie Chip. And I'm Paddy HK. And today we will be discussing Ants. Ollie, this is our very first two-parter. Yes. How are you feeling about that? I think it's necessary. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think this is a good litmus test for whether two-parters like this are going to work in the future, because mm. this is a very obvious comparison to make between two late 90s movies. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, if we were to ever compare two films and sort of try and figure out which of the two we preferred, this would be the, I think, litmus test is a good phrase. Yeah. You know, this is the ultimate example of two films that directly competed with each other at exactly the same time and I think it's a really it's really worth looking at them together yeah so when I I spoke to my dad earlier and I was talking to him about the fact that we were going to look at Ants and Bugs Life in sort of like a, a versus episode and he was like oh that's a really good idea and then he just started sort of talking his way through his memories of the movies and I realised really quickly that he was just mixing both of the films together in his memory so like he was like he was going, oh do you remember this bit in Bugs Life and I was like nah that doesn't happen in Bugs Life that's in Ants and then he would yeah. say oh what about this bit and I was like no that's Bugs Life yeah. So I think like, I don't think he's alone in doing that. And I think it's important to sort of uh, have a look at these two films in isolation, but then like bring it together with a comparison because they were directly in opposition to each other when they were released. Yeah, absolutely. And just to clarify, today we will be looking at Ants. So today we yes. are reviewing and uh, doing a retrospective on Ants in isolation. And like you said, in the next episode, we'll look at Bugs Life and uh, we're going to sort of like look at that on its own merit. And then at the end of that episode, We'll tie it all together by comparing the two and trying to decide which one we prefer. Mm. So you're going to explain a little bit about the relationship between these movies and why we've chosen to compare them. But before we do that, I just want to give a little bit of background info about this podcast to anyone who may not have heard it before. So Ollie and I are old friends who decided to create a list of our favourite childhood movies so we can revisit them one by one to see if they still hold up to scrutiny. Some loose rules for our selection process. The movies have to bear some kind of significance to our childhood or early adolescence. And we try to only select movies that we have not watched since that time. So without further ado, Ollie, why don't you explain a little bit about the relationship between these two movies and then we can go on to talk about Ants a bit more generally after that. Yeah, so um, basically A Bug's Life is a Disney Pixar animation and Ants is a DreamWorks animation mm-hmm. and these are two very competitive animation studios. Yeah. I think you'd probably agree with me in saying that Pixar has had, and justifiably so, the monopoly on the CGI animated kids movie market for quite some time like they seem to you know hit it out of the park every time they release something yeah and dreamworks has always sort of been the underdog i guess in that sort of way but this is a a really interesting period in film history because it's two studios going head to head over some material that is very similar across both movies Mm. so basically dreamworks were really keen to sort of get themselves into the market of cgi animated films it was a you know a really rapidly expanding market in terms of cinema so they did have plans in 1998 to release a film called the prince of egypt which was 
DreamWorks first feature animation. Yeah. That was going to be their sort of like their big flagship animated film that they were going to release. Uh, Disney sort of got wind of this and they really started to put the pressure on by releasing A Bug's Life. So in order to compete with DreamWorks as the Prince of Egypt, which I've never actually seen. Oh, have you not? No, I haven't. No. Oh, it's great. I mean, I, I think I put it on the list. It's on my list anyway. Oh, is it? I've no, I've never seen it. Um, but yeah, in competition to, to try and sort of like knock off the publicity for the Prince of Egypt, the Pixar team slated A Bug's Life to be released in mm. 1998 as well. Ants was actually going to be the follow-up movie after The Prince of Egypt, so the success of that film would spark interest in DreamWorks animations, and then they would release Ants in 1999, the following March. But Pixar did such a good job of sort of trying to outsell The Prince of Egypt with A Bug's Life that the DreamWorks studio decided they were going to bring Ants forward uh, mm. and release it before Bugs Life was released. Fucking baller. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because they had it in the works. So they're like, you know, fuck you guys. We're just going to bring this out six months earlier um, mm. before your film does. They actually released Ants six weeks before Bugs Life was released. And uh, <laughs> Pixar were absolutely fuming at this because actually there had been, in pre-production of both films, there had been sort of a bit of a dispute over who had the creative rights to the stories because mm. they're very similar. There's obviously like significant differences between the two films, but the general concept was very similar. And there was lots of back and forth um, between the two studios about, you know, who came up with the idea first. Mm. And I think it was quite a bold move of DreamWorks to be like, right, well, we're just going to release it first and then basically we're going to set the benchmark. So yeah, it's a really interesting little feud that developed between the two studio heads at this time. Yeah. And I don't know what, in terms of your relationship with both films, which one did you prefer as a child, first of all? I mean, we're not going to compare them too much now, but I think it's worth mentioning here which one you preferred. I have much stronger memories attached to Ants to be honest with you. Mm -hmm. I did really like A Bug's Life, and I'll talk about that a bit more when I actually try and think about what my memories of that movie were for the next episode. But I went into this viewing knowing that I had a strong preference for Ants as a kid. And I think this was for a few reasons. Firstly, I think this was my first cinematic experience that I was yeah. actually cognizant of. I think I have a very, very fleeting memory of going to see one of the Aladdin movies in the cinema when I was really young. But in terms of my first cinematic experience that I I was actually, you know, a real person for, I believe it was Ants. My aunties took me to go and see it. Shout out to Auntie Tessa and Auntie Liz. And I just remembered really loving it. And I remember, you know, going back to me being a hipster child, I remember always adamantly and outspokenly preferring this one because it was a PG and not a U <laughs> and therefore more more edgy, I yeah. guess. I think I, I actually remember having that debate with you at university, I think. Really? I distinctly remember having a conversation with someone about which one was better and I can't remember who it was but there'd be no one else in my life that would actually give that debate the time of day it's like <laughs> who, who really gives a shit but like I think I think it must have been you because no one else would have even like you know humoured me in the in the discussion well in that case this makes this comparison and these two episodes and these discussions even more interesting yeah the stakes are so much higher now aren't they yeah I've always fully backed Ants and presumably based on what you were saying then you were more of a bugs 
life fan. I was indeed, yes. Oh, that's that's actually amazing. I love that. I'd forgotten I'd completely forgotten about that. Oh, it's fucking on now, dude. It's fucking on now. Um but yeah, no, I, to be honest, I love both movies, but I remember having a strong preference for Ants, mainly because of the personal attachment I had to it in terms mm-hmm. of it being the first movie I went to go see at the cinema. So is that the one you expect at the end of this double episode to be the one that comes out on top in terms of your preference? I'm trying to keep an open mind based on the the experience of viewing ants as an adult i think it set the bar really high and obviously Mm. we'll talk about that a bit more but i i really enjoyed revisiting this movie and it really wasn't from a a place of nostalgia at all it was Mm -hmm. just i enjoyed engaging with this movie as an adult and like i said we'll go into that a little bit later on but in terms of my memories of the movie um i remembered the general narrative and the overarching plot i particularly remembered the ant versus termite war being absolutely brutal (laughs) yeah Um, and it still is isn't it really oh yeah it it absolutely is particularly the scene with the talking severed head yeah daddy glover's severed head (laughs) yeah but yeah i remembered the ant versus termite war being absolutely brutal and i was interested in seeing how i responded to that as an adult i remembered the picnic scene with the wasps and the cling film force field so the two Mm -hmm. sort of protagonist ants encounter a sandwich wrapped in cling film and uh z the main guy refers to it as a force field and i just remember that making me laugh when i was a kid um and i wrote this one question down going into this movie and i said do they drink out of another bug's asshole uh, and that's absolutely true yeah they do indeed and interestingly enough this is totally just a sheer coincidence so yeah so the worker ants go to a bar after their shifts and they drink aphids they get served aphid beer and they basically consume this beer by drinking out of the aphids asshole and that is actually true to nature is it yeah just by sheer coincidence i listened to a stuff you should know episode about ants a few weeks ago uh, shout out <laughs> stuff you should know great podcast and According to this episode of Stuff You Should Know, ants actually farm aphids. They have a symbiotic relationship with aphids where um, sort of the waste that aphids produce has like nutritional value to ants and is like this sweet sort of secretion. So ants literally, literally farm aphids just to eat out of their assholes. This is complete (laughs) 100% truth. I heard about it on Stuff You Should Know and I absolutely swear by that podcast. So um, yeah, that was what I remembered. The war, the picnic scene and the fact that the ant characters drink out of the anus of other creatures um what about you what was your general relationship with this movie i know we've sort of touched on the fact that you had a preference for a bug's life mm-hmm. but what about this movie specifically what was your relationship with it uh, well yeah I, I like i said my dad was really into pixar movies and he used to take me to see them all the time and a bug's life was one of the ones on that circuit at the time i'm not sure if it still is i haven't seen it for years but it was definitely at the time my favorite pixar movie it topped toy story for me for sure. Mm. And I think it just like, you know, I saw Ants after I saw Bugs Live, even though Ants, like I said, was released beforehand. And I think, you know, my relationship with Ants was like, oh, I liked A Bug's Life and that was about Ants. And this one is literally called Ants. So Mm. I'm sure I'm going to like this one too. I just remember being like generally quite disturbed and terrified by Ants. Because from what I can remember, Bugs Life is pretty, you know, colourful and happy and upbeat. Whereas (laughs) Ants is basically like fucking apocalypse now with insects. So yeah, it it was slightly disturbed 
disturbing for me um, when I was a kid. I remember essentially the exact same things as you, um, although I also do remember quite vividly that wrecking ball of ants. Mm. They, they sort of all collect, don't they, into a ball, and it's really fucking weird, actually, yeah. thinking about it. But I remember that image um, quite vividly, and yeah, the battle between the termites and the ants is, is really nightmare fuel again. Another late 90s kids movie that gives people nightmares. Love to see it. Love to see it. Um, and, and it's a dark movie. Yeah. Even though we haven't looked at A Bug's Life yet, and like you said, we're not going to try and compare them too much in this episode, but that is the main contrast that I, the thing that immediately springs to mind. Bug's Life is light, fun, colourful. Ants is just like brown, green, grey, dour, ants being melted alive and severed heads being picked up (laughs) off the floor saying they can't feel their legs. It is a dark, dark movie, basically. (laughs) Well, it's it's a kid's movie that starts in a therapist's office and it's, you know, it's aimed at children. Well, to be honest, I think part of our discussion will be whether or not this movie is actually aimed at children. It may have been marketed towards children, but I think it's highly debatable whether or not it is aimed at children. But I think that's something we can get into when we talk about our opinions on the movie but why do you tell me a little bit more about ants more generally so it was released in 1998 like i said um before it's interesting like this is the first film where i've had differing sources telling me different budgets but um mm. i'm going on box office mojo here and it said it cost 105 million dollars to make wow which is a lot of money. It might have something to do with the fact that they were trying to rush it out before Bugs Life. Um, it mm. costs something in the region of, I think, 15 million more than Bugs Life. And it's probably because they're like, shit, we need to get this thing out quickly. So we're going to pay everyone overtime to make sure the uh, the thing gets released on time. Um, there is actually like an anecdote that the head of the production, I think his name is like Katzenberg or something. Mm. He actually offered cash incentives for the animators to get the stuff done quickly. Mm. So that might have something to do with its immense budget. But it... It rated 171.8, so it's, uh, yeah, did all right. Yeah. Director-wise, it was a joint venture with Eric Darnell and Tim Johnson, who have, you know, a host of DreamWorks animations to their name. Darnell's worked on Madagascar and Shrek, Tim Johnson on How to Train Your Dragon, Over the Hedge, those sorts of things. So, you know, good CGI animated stock right there. Yeah, yeah. um, For sure. The most impressive thing, I think, for me, actually, there's two impressive things for me in this. First of all, is the cast. Oh, it's outrageous. What an outrageous cast. Yeah, yeah. And that's probably where a lot of the budget went, to be honest with you, man. Yeah, ridiculous. Star-studded, star-studded for the time. So we've got Woody Allen, who is the voice of the protagonist, Z. We've got Dan Aykroyd, Danny Glover, Gene Hackman, Jennifer Lopez, randomly, uh, Sylvester Stallone, Sharon Stone, Christopher Walken. Like, it is a is a big lineup right there. That's the first thing that's impressive. The second thing that impresses me is that it's 83 minutes long. Yes, I know. So good. I saw that. I was like, an hour and 26 <laughs> minutes or whatever it was. I was just like, yes. Couldn't believe it. I mean, again, we're, we're getting ahead of ourselves, but it's a tight little narrative, man. Yeah, it does not fuck around at all. Yeah, and they cram a lot in there, but it mm. definitely works in my opinion. But yeah, please, please continue. Um, Well, do you want my synopsi? Yes, please, yes. Give me your synopsi, sir, yes. Okay, so this is the VHS back of the box synopsis that I write for these every week. Z is a worker ant in the throes of an existential crisis. By chance, he meets a princess in the local bar and his life is suddenly given a new purpose. In order to meet her again, Z assumes the role of a soldier ant, fights in a violent battle against the termites, and returns an unlikely war hero. But the evil machinations of General Mandible are leading the colony to a watery demise. Z must now become a true hero and save his colony before it is too late. 
Very good. Very good as always, my friend. And what is your one-liner, please? My one-liner is Platoon meets Nietzsche with six legs. Yes. Um, I was actually talking to Scott about this in the run-up to recording this episode. My friend Scott, um, who is my go-to philosophy nerd, he actually (laughs) studied this movie when he did philosophy at university. Mm -hmm. There's so many different philosophical readings that you can uh, apply to this movie, Nietzsche being one, Plato being another. But Mm -hmm. again, we'll we'll get into that. Um, But yeah, so I feel like we've... This is a bit of a different episode. So we've done things slightly out of order um, and we're just sort of trying to find our feet in how we want to approach this two-parter. Yeah. But I guess, shall we just get into our discussion of the movie? Shall we move on to discuss the things we enjoyed about this film? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, Ollie. so we sort of started talking about this in our intro, but why don't you tell me what you enjoyed about this movie? Yeah, well, it's off the back of what we said about the cast, really. They clearly paid a lot of money for these individuals to be a part of the production, and it's definitely paid off because Mm. their voice acting is actually excellent. I really like Stallone in this. He's great. He's so great. That was one of my notes as well. Yeah. Not only is his performance great, but he's, again, another incredible casting choice. There is something inherently hilarious about Sylvester Stallone playing just a really hench ant. Yeah. You know? (laughs) (laughs) And, like, reasonably dense as well. Like, doesn't really have too many uh, brain cells. But, yeah, it's great. And, you know, although Woody Allen irritates me beyond belief, and he's a dubious character in real life, it seems, but he does a stellar job of being like the sort of anxious irritating protagonist yeah i think that might be one of the more divisive points of the movie um obviously as you said woody allen is a very shady character in real life Mm. but in terms of just as a performer he's already quite a divisive person and he's quite a divisive aspect of this movie but i think he absolutely works for this particular character. Yeah, for sure. You can just really feel the the anxiety coming through in the in the voice acting from him. Um, but they're all working really hard. And I think actually what's really great about it is that they all work really well together. There's not any like standout performers. Like it is an ensemble cast of some really good voice acting, really. Yeah. My personal favourite, like I said, is Sly. But yeah, Chris Walken as well is just quality. He's so good. And it's also, I love how Christopher Walken's character, he's just called cutter and he seems to be like physically modeled after him as well he's got those like angular cheekbones yeah and he just has that voice that chills you to the bone (laughs) you know that dead behind the eyes zero emotion ruthless military kind of operative yeah he's such a good casting choice and just his performance is really understated yeah like every line is almost delivered in just like this deadly whisper and you have to listen quite hard to know that it's him yeah he's not like a caricature of himself like he has maybe Mm. become in popular media over the last sort of decade or so yeah but like you know we saw him in mouse hunt and Mm. he played that role brilliantly as well so i think there is he's got a little niche hasn't he where Mm. you know his very serious adult tone works really nicely in silly movies yeah yeah definitely really really great performance him sly and woody allen admittedly were probably the standouts for me absolutely yeah for sure for sure and i think actually yes they've done a really good job in terms of their voice acting but i think their life is made a bit easier because of the script writing oh yeah i think it's a really well written movie we said you know it's 83 minutes long it's very tightly written it doesn't fuck around at all which is great yeah particularly for a movie like this but it's loaded with excellent jokes and yeah really quite heady themes yeah so do you want to i don't know if you've got any particular examples you want to give us of particularly good moments yeah well 
Well, I mean, as you said, it's a very quotable script. It's absolutely loaded with quippy dialogue and the characters feel very believable because they're speaking to each other in a very ironically human way. Yeah. And not a single word on the page is wasted, it seems. I lost count of the amount of times I laughed during the movie. And it wasn't, you know, it's not like laugh out loud funny. It's just clever, isn't it? It's just very clever. Every line seemed to have some kind of purpose and and seemed to be hitting a small punchline home in some way or telling you something about, you know, one of the characters. And I actually think the strength of the script is largely summed up by the opening monologue of the movie. So Mm -hmm. as you mentioned earlier, the movie opens with a voiceover monologue of Z talking to his psychiatrist. Mm -hmm. And he says... All my life, I've lived and worked in the big city, which now that I think of it, is kind of a problem since I always feel uncomfortable around crowds. I mean it. I have this fear of enclosed spaces. Everything makes me feel trapped all the time. You know, I always tell myself there's got to be something better out there, but maybe I think too much. I think everything must go back to the fact that I had a very anxious childhood. You know, my mother never had time for me. When you're the middle child in a family of five million, you don't get any attention. I mean, how is it possible? And I've always had these these abandonment issues, which plagued me. My father was basically a drone like I said and the guy flew away when I was just a lava and my job don't get me started on that because it really annoys me um, and I, I won't go through the whole thing but you know that's just about half of that monologue yeah and already you can see it's successfully establishing his character immediately he's anxious he's going through the throes of an existential crisis he's establishing the themes of the movie so it's like what's my purpose mm. um, how does one exist as an individual when you live in such an inherently collective society and it also establishes like the wit and the intelligence of the script it doesn't talk down to its audience no not at all even though this is a movie I enjoyed as a child and it's a movie that in many ways was aimed at children and was certainly competing with a movie that was squarely aimed at children, the script would suggest that it had a much more adult audience in mind. Yeah, for sure. Just some of the words in this opening monologue, you wouldn't be able to understand as a child. And that's not necessarily a bad thing because it certainly didn't take away from my enjoyment of it as a child. But like, he goes on to say things like, I feel physically inadequate. My whole life, I've never ever been able to lift more than 10 times my own body weight. (laughs) And it's this whole gung-ho super organism thing that I can't get. I try to, but I can't get it. And so in what is essentially a two minute monologue, if that, a few lines of dialogue, he spells out the mission statement of not only that character, but the movie as a whole. Yeah. It's not going to insult your intelligence. It's going to make you laugh. And it's going to be exploring some pretty deep themes through the lens of this character. Yeah, I mean, like, it's a good... It's always a handy metaphor, isn't it? Like, an ant colony is a handy metaphor or a handy platform to criticise, like, dominant, hegemonic ideology. And I think it does it really well. I particularly like... It's not even just in the script, but just in mise-en-scene generally. Like, the fact that the colony is filled with... All of these like propaganda slogans, yeah, like a you know like a socialist or communist state. So I picked out some of my favourites. Like, yeah. there's just one that's just a big banner that just says "Conquer Idleness" <laughs> just right in the middle of the frame, like in the uh, opening like two minutes. But I like there's other ones like "Rest Once, Work Twice," yeah, which yeah, I think is yeah, good. Yeah. And there's a great moment where Z comes back from the termite war and they're all singing his praises because he's the only ant to survive the battle. And he comes home and he's like this war hero. And there's one banner in the crowd that just says, 
one to nothing, we win. But it's like <laughs> there's been like millions and millions of people died, like or ants and termites died in that conflict. It's like, yeah, well, we've got one left, so we win. <laughs> it's great. Yeah, it's definitely an interesting an interesting commentary on how society in general reacts to conflicts of that yeah. nature. You yeah. know, you can take anything and spin it into a victory if you have the right propaganda machine, you know? Yeah, um, and. I think we're starting to touch on the themes of the movie and I just want to pull back a little bit from that because I think that's a much uh, deeper conversation and I just want to focus a little bit on the wit of the movie Mm -hmm. because I just jotted down a couple of lines. Admittedly, most of them come from Z. It's mostly Z that says these lines and it sort of speaks volumes about the humour of the movie but also, you know, as I said, its unwillingness to pander to a lowest common denominator, you know? Yeah. Uh, So, for example, when he finds out they're about to go to war with the termites, he says, hang on, I feel we're being a bit extreme here. Why don't we just influence their political process through campaign contributions um and like he's getting started on by another another aunt at some point um when he's with the princess and the princess is like why don't you just like take care of this guy and he's like what are you crazy the guy's built like a pebble (laughs) (laughs) and yeah and obviously like when they're drinking the aphid beer he says something like call me crazy but i have a thing about drinking from the anus of another creature which is just yeah and like that's just like three examples but it cannot be stressed enough like these little lines these little witticisms are a mile a minute they're coming like thick and fast there's maybe like one or two every five minutes you know at the very least yeah and and i just like the fact that they're all sort of puns or little witticisms about life as an insect yeah i just think it's great like the one that you mentioned i was actually going to bring that one up about he's built like a pebble because (laughs) what the film does really nicely and it's something that you mentioned that you particularly liked earlier on that it plays with scale yeah so the fact that you know to an ant obviously a pebble is like an insanely huge boulder right and it's just like those little things and that there's too many really to just mention here but it's like a continuous stream of quite subtle but very clever lines of dialogue that just remind you that you're watching ants on screen and their frames of reference are going to be different to yours yeah one of my favorite moments i got two particularly nice subtle moments i really like the ant that's suffering from post-traumatic stress at the bar and is clearly drunk and he starts like rambling about this place called Insectopia and no one believes him and then they're like come on you've had too much to drink we're going to take you away like it's just a really human experience but being plastered onto an ant in a bar and they're drinking out of the anus of aphids like it's madness but it's great also little cameo from John Mahoney that ant John Mahoney I don't know if you know who he is but he he plays the dad in Frasier which is one of my all time favourite sitcoms characters so it's a nice little little casting beat there but yeah what was your other favorite moment uh the other one that i i really liked was like the uh the stoner dumpster bugs yeah 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 they have this like lovely sort of classic stoner existentialist conversation (laughs) where he's like maybe we're just we're just a small part of like a huge thing that we have no concept of yeah because obviously like the classic stoner conversation is about like our place in the universe and we're just a little speck but like in terms of the ants and the bugs like they just don't realize that they are coexisting with like human beings and human society and i just love that little and it's a really small little bit it's like what yeah. a 10 second piece of dialogue yeah but it's just a really lovely little moment and um it does really well for the world building of the film yeah and they're like flies as well aren't they or at least one or two of them are flies yeah. and they're like eating something and they're like man this tastes like crap and then one of them's like really let me try and he's like hey this is crap not bad, not bad. <laughs> 
<laughs> so good. But talking of the world building, and I think this is a nice little uh, segue into, you mentioned scale, and I think the scale and the world building is just one of this movie's absolute strengths. It is fantastic. Mm. In that scene, to carry that example forward, they're sitting around, you know, what in their universe is a campfire, but it's actually just like the glowing embers of a discarded match, Yeah, which is brilliant. And there's so many little moments like that. The way this movie uses scale to craft its universe, but also to create a sense of peril based on the ant's perspective is fantastic. Mm -hmm. Um, So obviously we already touched on the aphid beers, which was a detail that I absolutely loved. And then the first time you really get an idea of how this movie is going to use scale to create scenes of tension is the magnifying glass scene. Yeah, it's really cool. Yeah, it's really great. And it's also, it's really dark. You know, you see these ant characters just get immolated before your (laughs) eyes. So they're Z and the princess are running away from the colony and these uh, soldier ants are trying to follow them and to try and get the princess back. And suddenly the entire sky is obscured by this huge magnifying glass and it shoots down this huge flaming... like, like It's a beam, isn't it? Yeah, this huge column of flame yeah. uh, that completely eviscerates them. And there's countless moments throughout the movie where they do something like that. And my favourite one is actually the moment with the trainer. Yeah. So... Um, like at one point, this human foot steps on the ants and they get trapped in some chewing gum on the bottom of the shoe. And as the person is walking, they're being carried through the air. And what I love about that is it's not only playing with scale and they're like climbing over the shoelaces and trying to, you know, navigate this shoe, but it also plays with time. So it's not just the perception of scale, it's the perception of time. Yeah, it looks like it moves very slowly, doesn't it? Yeah, it's moving in slow motion. And that sort of like, you know, goes back to the match, which is the campfire, because, you know, this discarded match lasts long enough for these insects to sit around it and talk about their lives and their existences presumably all night when from our perspective that match was probably burning for just a few seconds yeah so yeah they're clinging to these trainers and flying through the air and it just makes this person whoever this person is that's accidentally stood on these ants feel like a behemoth you know yeah humans are almost like treated as like this lovecraftian nightmare you know (laughs) it's really really fascinating so yeah i think you're right to pick up on the scale it's one of my favorite aspects of the movie i just particularly like the yeah, the whole bit with Insectopia, so the picnic and then the the rubbish bin being yeah. the reality of Insectopia. And it's actually, obviously, that is Insectopia. That's what insects are drawn to is the trash, not the actual picnic itself. And just like the way they play with scale, the fact that the bird bath is called the monolith. Yeah. And it's like this huge imposing structure. Like all of those little moments are really good for getting you into the perspective of an ant. And they do yeah. it very effectively, I think. Yeah, it's fantastic. It's fantastic. But yeah, so we sort of touched on the themes of the movie as well. And I think that is a fairly complex conversation. Yeah. But I think that's another strength of the movie. So I've read a lot of threads online about how people read the themes of this movie. And a lot of people, the most simplistic reading of it is it's democracy versus communism or socialism. And I actually think the themes in the movie are actually a little bit more nuanced than that and a little bit more complex, which I think really plays to the movie's strengths. So... What I actually think the foundational theme of the movie is it's not necessarily any one particular political ideology versus another political ideology. I think it's actually authoritarianism versus individual liberty. So we initially thought, oh, is this just going to be another sort of like anti-socialist movie? Like an animal farm 
ripoff. Yeah, but then as the movie goes along, it's very pro-worker. At one point, an ant even says, it's the workers who control the means of production. Yeah, I know, yeah. Literally quoting Karl Marx. It's brilliant. Yeah, literally quoting Marxist philosophy. And, you know, there's this whole B-plot where the ants are, like, unionising and demanding better conditions. (laughs) But, like, there's loads of class-based stuff in there as well because you've got those, like, distinctly middle-class wasps who are, like, looking down their noses at the pathetic, lowly ants and they feel that they have to, like, assist them in some way and are really patronising to them. Um, So, like, there's lots of, like, class-based thematic elements in there as well, which I personally found the most entertaining. Oh, yeah, 100%, 100%. And it's really interesting as well because you feel like the movie's going to go one way with its messaging. So at first you feel like, okay, so it's saying individualism versus collectivism, okay? That's essentially what's going on. But then towards the end of the movie, you know, when the chamber of the ants is going to be flooded, one ant just screams, every ant for themselves! And like, (laughs) it's chaos and they're all running away and they all get consumed by their own individual well-being. Mm. And it's only when Z sort of encourages them to act as a unit and act as a collective again that they're able to save each other. Yeah, And so it shows not only what happens when collectivism is taken too far and veers into authoritarianism, it also shows what the other side of the coin, which is what happens when individualism goes too far, which is when people become self-centered and they don't want to serve the greater good. So it really strikes this balance between these different political ideologies really well. And it's not an easy thing to do it does it really really well and it's not preachy in them either it sort of just offers them up as fun little ideas as opposed to like trying to instill some particular message to the audience it's just sort of like throwing these ideas at you and i think it's delivered in a really tight well structured way yeah which makes it just a genuinely interesting watch because you're like trying to figure out like what you agree with and what you disagree with in the film i think that's really good because it's obviously like it's critical of like aggressive military policy Mm -hmm. you know it makes a lot of points about the fact that the ants rush into conflict with the termites which are by all accounts like their neighbors effectively yeah which i thought was like incredibly poignant considering what is literally going on right now um but it it does a good job of like sort of suggesting that although the battle sequence arguably is the most memorable sequence in the whole film it's still sort of suggesting that it was a waste of everyone's time and everyone's lives that were involved in it and uh, i think it did that quite tactfully 100%. And that's why I think as well that to read the film as pro-Western democracy and anti-socialism or pro-individualism and anti-collectivism is really simplistic because there's a lot of layers to this. Yeah, it's quite reductive really, isn't it? Yeah, it's really reductive and it's a shame how many people I've seen have that opinion because I think it creates space for all of these political ideologies and shows how they can be taken too far and how they can have a positive use as well. But the one thing I would say, if you you could say this movie has a definite political ideology like a black and white political ideology it is an anti-fascist film like that is the only thing i can say with absolute certainty yeah, is it sure. is an anti-fascist film and that's explored through the character of general mandible which side note phenomenal name for a character <laughs> yeah. for a warmongering ant general mandible such a good name um but yeah so he talks about the idea of creating a pure colony where every he wants to kill all the workers and he wants to replace them all with soldiers who are like he sees as hyper masculine like yeah, strong physically superior yeah. and he uses the word pure and i think he could definitely be read as sort of like a stand-in for that fascist ideology you know military aggression sort of an idea of racial or societal purity with a very clear hierarchy uh, usually yeah. a military 
politicized one. Um, so if there's one thing you can say about the movie's political messaging, it is that it is an anti-fascist movie, but everything else that it explores, I think it shows many different sides to these political conversations. Yeah, I also think as well, like maybe on a more simplistic level or at least on a more uh, sort of personal level, I think it's a quite an interesting exploration of like life in the city. Yes. Because, you know, he's in his therapy session. He's talking about his job and he doesn't like crowds and he doesn't like, he's basically claustrophobic, isn't he? Mm. And that's cut with a really nice visualization. It starts as a city skyline, mm. backlit city skyline in shadow and then it turns into like blades of grass. Yeah. So I think there's like a, they're trying to set up this idea that Z, the ant, is basically just like an office worker in the city who's fed up with his boring life. Like, that resonates quite a lot, I think. Not necessarily with me personally, I live quite rurally, but, like, city life for me feels like what he's explaining. Yeah, I think if you're an individual trying to understand and carve out your own individual identity in a metropolis, this film is very relatable. Yeah, for sure. And I think they go they go to a lot of effort to establish the ant colony as this, like, teeming metropolis. Yeah. And that's why I actually think it is really a movie that can be better appreciated as an adult because you've got this character who doesn't understand what his purpose is, feels dissatisfied with his life and feels um, disconnected from the world around him. And it's precisely because he feels like one in five million, you know? Yeah, exactly. Uh, which I think, you know, as someone who does live in a slightly bigger city is something that I can relate to. Mm -hmm. But obviously the immediate parallel being drawn here is New York. Yeah, for sure. So it's obviously on a much bigger scale than I have any understanding of. Um, but yeah, so that more or less covers what I enjoyed about the movie. I think generally speaking, it was just... It was just a really great movie, like structurally, narratively, thematically and tonally. I really enjoyed this movie mm -hmm. from start to finish. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, you know, not everything's great. We do have to talk about the things that we think are worth criticizing in the movie. But before we do that, should we just touch on the animation and the CGI a little bit more generally uh, and discuss what we thought of that? Yeah, well, I mean, for a late... 90s animated film i think it does a serviceable job in terms of the animation yeah. like it makes sense doesn't it if it's a fledgling technological concept the use of cgi animation for a for a feature then it makes sense to use bugs as a as a tool because you know mm. before this pixar's first venture toy story they're not human characters they're toys and toys by their nature are really quite straightforward to animate because they're going to be more modular in terms of their appearance. They're going to move mm. in a in a more restricted, regimented way than like a, if you're trying to animate a lifelike human being. Yeah. And I think, you know, bugs and particularly ants are a good next step in that because, you know, a lot of insects have hard exterior exoskeletons mm. and being able to animate those is maybe a step forward from a toy do you see what i'm getting at and then you move yeah. on and then you can start animating things that have fur and then you can start animating human beings and and move on from there but i think like it's a logical step isn't it to have bugs as characters because they would facilitate the technology a little bit better than maybe human characters would yeah i would agree and i think the thing with uh animation technology especially at this time is the one thing that most films would probably feel wary of falling victim to is the uncanny valley so if you try and create human characters they're going to immediately seem uncanny yeah. whereas like you say with a toy it doesn't matter if they're uncanny because they're already uncanny they're meant to be uncanny yeah, exactly. and it's sort of the same with an ant you've got a bit more room to play with creative license and also yes yeah, structurally like you said they're split into like three parts you know they've got distinct 
sections to their bodies. So I suppose that's why it makes sense to animate them like that. But in terms of my opinion on the animation, I'd say, yeah, it's aged pretty well. Although the character's ability to facially emote is definitely noticeably limited. Yeah, So sure. uh, that was the one aspect of it where it took me out of it a little bit. Um, the characters do look a little dead behind the eyes at times, but it didn't really bother me too much. The thing with ants is you want to be able to create these huge... Uh, set pieces where there's like millions of bodies for example and they did that really really well i thought yeah i would agree with you it was a bit ugly though the movie generally it's not very easy on the eye is it no yeah they're very blocky and angular all of the characters and like you said at the start it's very brown and dark green and gray and it's a little bit lifeless in terms of its color palette yeah as a piece of art it's functional isn't it but it's not wondrous like pixar are able to pull out pretty much every time they do their films what's brilliant about modern pixar particularly but it's been a, a theme throughout animation now i think for the last decade or so is that yes there's a main purpose to each scene but there is more often than not in the background of the scene like a small little sub narrative between two other characters or something funny happens to another character in the background of the scene that you draw attention to and it really doesn't happen in this movie at all like shit is not happening behind them in fact like there's multiple moments in this film which again serves the ideology but there's lots of moments in this film where there's just copy paste models of ads yeah. doing the exact same thing in the exact same way which is just a bit dull really, in terms of the visual. I agree, but again, thematically it works because obviously you're relating to the uh, boredom of the character. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, like that's all I really have to say on the animation. So if you're happy to move on, we can start to talk about bad stuff. Yeah, let's do it. I feel physically inadequate. I've never been able to lift more than 10 times my own body weight. And, and when you get down to it, handling dirt is, you know, it's not my idea of a rewarding career. Okay, Ollie, so talk to me. What did you not enjoy as much in this movie? Well, other than the film being ugly, like we've just talked about with the animation, I thought the motivation and the sort of plot that General Mandible has to be slightly strange and out of left field. Yeah. Because I think that the film, like we've mentioned before, is very subtle in its approach, I think, mm. which is a bonkers thing to say when you think about it. Um, <laughs> but I, like the villain's plot is basically to destroy the colony and then start a new one with the warrior ants who are these like hyper-masculine meatheads, basically. And I just think the whole digging a tunnel to flood the colony plot is a little bit tenuous yeah i think what the film was trying to go for was like oh the ants are digging this big tunnel like it's a big event isn't it like mm. oh, we're nearly through to the big tunnel and we as an audience never know why they're building this big tunnel until right at the end and i think it just would have maybe served the purpose of the narrative a little bit better if we had a little bit more insight into his plan from the beginning yeah, um, yeah. because it comes out of nowhere it's like oh so he's a genocidal maniac now whereas before he just thought he was a bit of a nasty piece of work but yeah he literally wants to kill millions of ants and it just comes out of nowhere right at the very end i thought that was just a strange choice really it is a bit odd and like you said in a movie full of moral complexity where you've got like so he makes two major decisions to control the population 
of the colony, mm-hmm. one of which is to take the ants to war with the termites, you know. So that's his way of essentially, he selects certain military ants that he knows don't support him to go to war against the termites so that they'll be wiped out. He knows it's going to be a suicide mission, yeah. essentially. Yeah. That is a bit more of a kind of like interesting way of going about something like that. Yeah. But I think you're right. He is essentially a madman with the ant equivalent of a red button. <laughs> and it's just him <laughs> yeah. pressing the big red button the ant equivalent of a red button i love that yeah literally and and and, and he's 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 just putin isn't he but like yeah let's not let's not get sidetracked into that too much but yeah like in a movie that is very nuanced and does have these sort of like moral gray areas so for example you've got a character like barbados who is um danny glover yeah yeah danny glover's character he's a soldier who's been sent to fight this pointless war and all he knows is being a soldier and he's going and he's ruthlessly killing these termites that didn't ask to be attacked yeah but he's still you know a sympathetic character he still inspires a lot of pathos you like him Mm -hmm. so that's one side of this you know you can explore these immoral actions and questionable actions and balance it with actually liking the characters and you can explore this kind of grey morality in a number of ways, but just having bad man wants to wipe out Colony does feel a little bit at odds with the rest of the movie, I agree. Yeah, and it's the fact that he's a surreptitious villain, and I think that to have such an overt and over-the-top conclusion to his plan just seems a little bit heavy-handed. Which is a shame because it's actually a cool idea, like to flood the colony with a with a tunnel into the lake or whatever. Mm. But it, yeah, it just felt like it came a little bit out of nowhere. I think I would have liked it a bit more if we could spend a little bit more time getting to know his plot. Um, yeah, other than that, like I don't know how how do you feel about the gender representation in the film? It's limited, isn't it? It's limited. I mean, you've got two, well, not counting the queen because she's barely in the movie, but you've got two primary female characters. You've got Princess Bala, who spends most of her time being kidnapped by Z, which I'll touch on in a second. And then you have Sylvester Stallone's love interest. She is called Azteca. She's played by Jennifer Lopez. Um, But I actually think she could have been a really interesting character because she's very sure of herself. And I like how she approaches Weaver, Sylvester Stallone's character. She's actively flirting with him and she's the one that's expressing an interest with him. But they just don't really do anything with it. No, she just well, she just becomes a love interest, doesn't she, by the end? Which is a bit of a shame. Yeah, she could have been an interesting character, but she just gets sort of sidelined very quickly, which is a shame. But other than that, Princess Bala is a pretty interesting character. She shows a lot of agency and she has a lot of screen time. But I think her character and the agency of her character is sort of undermined really heavily by how they frame her relationship with Z. And this was like my main problem with the movie was that Z is basically, in a very on-brand way for Woody Allen, (laughs) is basically a massive creep to the princess all the way through the movie. And I I really didn't enjoy it, to be honest, because he stalks her he kidnaps her, he threatens her life, he doesn't accept or understand her lack of interest. Uh, And in fact, there's a moment where he's like practically manhandling her and trying to drag her around and uh, she punches him in the face, which is very, very satisfying. (laughs) But he's still able to win her over in the end, which I think is um, very much a product of the way romantic narratives were handled during this era of cinema. I think there's a very pervasive trope 
which is this idea that if a woman repeatedly rejects a man, then it's actually because she she secretly does really want you yeah. and you have to just put pressure on her and pursue her and eventually she'll relent. It's a conquest narrative, isn't it, really? like yeah. It's a medieval courtship type narrative where the woman treats the man really harshly, not because she doesn't like him, but because she really likes him and she wants him to prove his worth to her. Yeah. And then you get the male characters proving their worth by doing like basically inappropriate things um, to win them over. Yeah. James Bond is particularly guilty of this, I think. Yeah, absolutely. There's some horrible moments in early James Bond movies where he just uses, he just basically physically overpowers her and it turns from a sexual assault into a romantic love scene. Yeah. Um, It happens a number of times in those films and it's really, really quite disturbing. Yeah, and that's essentially, um, that sort of happens in this movie on a macro level. There are occasions where Z physically overpowers the princess, drags her to somewhere where she doesn't want to be. And basically what ends up happening they sort of try and frame it as like a kind of when harry met sally they're bickering and they don't like each other but then they end up liking each other but the reality is she has absolutely no reason to like him no he literally kidnaps her stalks her first of all then kidnaps her and threatens her life to try and get out of you know a sticky situation you know he holds her hostage against the other guards and to me there should be no coming back from that and if anything their whole relationship is basically just stockholm syndrome the problem is the movie doesn't treat it as such no there are interesting ways that you can explore that i mean pedro almodovar did it in tie me up tie me down probably in his own problematic way but you know there are definitely more complex ways of exploring that shout out to getting almodovar into this podcast mate by the way yeah absolutely just gotta flex the degree (laughs) but um yeah their whole relationship is basically just (laughs) stockholm syndrome but the movie doesn't frame it as that uh the movie frames it as she doesn't like him because she doesn't know him yeah and then when she gets to know him she's going to like him and there's actually a moment actually where uh, Cutter comes, Christopher Walken's character, like he comes uh, to find Z and the princess and he kidnaps the princess again and takes her back to the colony. Yeah. And Z then decides he has to go back and rescue her. And I was at that point, I was just like, oh, fucking LZ, it's just so noble of you to go and rescue Princess Barla after she's been kidnapped. You're a much friendlier kidnapper yeah. Than, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> than Christopher Walken is, you know? <laughs> and it's, it's a shame as well because it's, I mean, it's like, it's the ends justifying the means because by all intents and purposes, like he kidnaps her to go on a quest to this, like, insectopia that may or may not exist. He's basically deranged in her eyes to begin with, but then yeah. once it's proved that insectopia does exist, it's like, oh, Z, you were right all along, so it's sort of okay yeah. that you've treated me this way. But, like, it's even worse than that in a way because he doesn't want to take her with him initially because, you know, the guards are trying to seize him and he uses her as a prop to escape that situation and they fall down a hole and out of the colony into the outside world. And, and as soon as they leave the colony, as soon as they fall out of the colony, he's like... I'm going to go and find Insectopia and you can either come with me. Fuck you, you basically. Yeah, if you you don't want to come with me, then fuck you. You can make your own way back to the colony. And she's just like, no, you need to take me back to the colony because you've removed me from the colony. So he's just like, nah, nah, I don't really fancy doing that. See ya. Yeah, see see you later. See you later. Maybe I'll change my mind if you start liking me. Like, you know, it it sucked, man. It sucked. It really, really sucked. And it wasn't a good... It wasn't a good representation of how romantic relationships should be established, but it wasn't an uncommon one at that time. I've seen it in a lot of other movies, you know. And the, the film draws attention to it as well, because he says it as the end, doesn't he? He's like, this was just a movie about a knight rescuing a princess or something along those lines. And like, the film is sort of given a license to do that by the nature of the metaphor they're constructing, because obviously ant colonies are basically feudal societies, aren't they? With like a monarchy yeah. and 
with like you know being in line to the throne isn't there an incest joke made at one point in this movie yeah 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 he basically calls all the royals inbred yeah exactly yeah. so they're playing with all of that and it sort of gives them a license to have these gendered roles in the film yeah um, and it's just a shame really that they couldn't subvert that a little bit more like they did with the other ideologies in their film as a whole yeah i agree and like i said i'll probably t- expand on that a little bit more as we go into the changes that we'd like to make to the movie well speaking of which shall we um move into changes i think we've done the dislikes at this point yeah absolutely let's do it why are you stalking me don't you realize that i'm out of your league you know i was gonna let you become part of my most erotic fantasies but now you can just forget that write it off so we've had a look at the likes and the dislikes and as always we uh, have a look at potential changes we could make if we were ever given the chance so paddy have you got anything in mind for potential changes you'd make to ants yeah, so basically I reckon it's it's to do with the discussion of gender that we were just touching upon and in particular, obviously I'd kind of reframe the romantic relationship between Princess Bala and Z. If you're going to stick with the kidnapping narrative, then definitely don't have them be romantically involved uh, and maybe explore that as another area of moral complexity, yeah. you know, make him maybe a bit of an anti-hero. But the main thing I would change in terms of actually the structure of the movie, and I can't believe I'm about to say this because it would mean writing out Sylvester Stallone, but... <laughs> I think rather than having the two separate characters of Weaver, who's Sylvester Stallone, and Azteca, who is Jennifer Lopez, I think combine the two into the same character and maybe have, you know, Z's hench friend, who's a soldier and very physically capable, just be Azteca and maybe subvert those gender ideas a little bit through that character. Like I said, in the narrative, she's a cool character, but she doesn't really serve much of a purpose. And I think you could quite easily combine the two and it would be an interesting flip to have Azteca be the soldier character, essentially. Yeah, I think that's completely valid. It would just bring it into the 21st century a little bit, wouldn't it, to be honest? Yeah. Um, and make it a little bit more palatable for modern tastes, yeah. particularly in, in relation to archetypes and things like that. Yeah. Mine mine really revolves around, again, that strange plot point that the villain has. Like, I don't know, I'm a sucker for a decent villain. Mm. And um, I know we said we weren't comparing, but I just remember Hopper in A Bug's Life being absolutely awesome. Yeah. And I had no memory of the villain in this one. Yeah. So I think, you know, make make the villain a little bit more stand out. Mm. Make his goals and his objectives and his motivations a little bit clearer and a little bit less out of left field. Yeah. That's the, probably the only loosely written bit of plot in this whole movie is his plan. If we just tighten that up a little bit, I think it would, you know, almost be a flawless script yeah absolutely you know really tightly written and i just think there's this one little loose thread that could really nicely be weaved in and they just sort of fall at that hurdle a little bit yeah i agree but like i don't think that harms the rewatch value of the movie i mean it's very rare for us to watch a movie on this podcast where i would happily watch it again and this is definitely one of those movies i would happily revisit this next week you know yeah for sure it's a really really fun movie and i suppose that's kind of segueing into the final section of this episode ollie do you think you need rose tinted specs to enjoy this movie or do you think it holds up on its own merit no i think that it it holds up on its own merit and i'd probably go as far to say that it's probably better now than it was when i was younger just because i have the insight into the ideologies a little bit more in the film Mm -hmm. and i think that you know like you said scott studied this film at university on his philosophy degree yeah he basically uh 
his lecturer used it as a means of discussing a theory to do with Plato. I can't quite remember the specific theory, but basically Google Plato and Ants listeners and there's a few articles about it. It's definitely an interesting read. Well, I think that's that's evidence in itself that this film sort of stands the test of time and, and stands up outside of the lens of nostalgia. Mm. So I'd say that it's probably better now than it was, in my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the strength of this movie is the fact that it is able to appeal so well to children because I did really like it when I was a kid because I guess the overall narrative is fairly simple to understand. It's just the substance of the narrative and what, you know, the dialogue and the little character moments is where the movie really shines and that's what Mm. you can really appreciate as an adult. So I agree, you don't need rose-tinted specs to enjoy this one. In fact, I'd actively encourage everyone to go and watch this and I'm really curious to watch A Bug's Life now. Yeah, me too. The pressure's on, man. Oh yeah, it set a high bar. It set a really high bar and like, I'm very curious to not only see if A Bug's Life holds up in the same way, but also how it will compare to this movie. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Okay. Well, yeah, I guess join us in a couple of weeks where we will be discussing A Bug's Life and then eventually comparing the two movies. But before we go, I do need to say thank you to Dilettante for letting us use their song My Dress as our theme tune. So thank you to them. You can check them out at Dilettante Songs. But yes, in the meantime, I have been Paddy. And I've been Ollie. And we have been Rose Tinted. Thank you very much for listening and we'll see you all next time. Before you go, don't forget to rate and subscribe to us on your preferred podcast platform. Remember, you can also follow us on Instagram at Rose Tinted Movies. Thanks again for listening.